Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate that. You know, we are starting a Christmas uh, series today called Christmas Messengers. Um, and what we're talking about in the next four weeks is angels from the Christmas story. Um, so if you've ever been fascinated by that, then, then this, this series is definitely for you. Now, the applications of this series are going to apply to our lives like any, any, any sermon will. But I think it's going to be a really special season to be talking about the Christmas story and to see uh, some of these elements of the Christmas story where there's some miraculous things happen with these, uh, with these beings that we call angels. Now, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, so I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. Now, we don't have a screen this morning, but you probably figured that out. Um, so it's a great day to download the Oakwood app. So if you have your phone, you have your tablet, your iPad, whatever, download the Oakwood app. If you go to your app store and you type in Oakwood Enid, it'll take you to the app. When you open the app, it has sermon notes right there on the front page of the app. You just touch that, all of the... All of the uh, the sermon notes will be there. All the scriptures that you need will be there. So it's a great way to interact with a sermon. There's even a way for you to take notes and save them um, in, the, in the app there. So if you want to uh, engage the word of God that way, that's what we want you to do. Because that's the most important thing, right? Every Sunday morning is that God would speak to us, that we would be engaged and our, that our hearts and our minds would be attentive and alert to receive from the Lord uh, what he wants to teach us this morning. And uh, I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this, this series on Christmas messengers as we begin it today. These messengers that we're talking about are angels. If you look up the word angel from the scriptures, when you read that in your English Bible, angel means messenger. And so we need to remember that as we're thinking about angels. And what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks is four instances just in the Christmas story where these angelic messengers come and they are a part of the Christmas story, and, and not just a small part of it. I mean, they, they're a big part of the Christmas story. These angelic messengers, and if you think about this, as you in the whole of Scripture, in the whole of the Bible, like you, you know, the angels are are coming into these situations all the time. It seems like you know circumstances are crazy. They're always popping their heads in, giving an angelic message from the Lord. I mean, they're doing all kinds of things, and sometimes I think because they're celestial beings. Because they're, they're kind of mystic to us, sometimes the, we, we make a, a big deal about angels. Maybe you have that friend, or maybe you have that family member uh, that really likes them some angels. Uh, maybe when you went to their house at Thanksgiving, you saw the angel art in the, in, you know, all over the house. They have the little guardian angel you know, business cards that are like on their mirror in the bathroom. And when you were washing your hands, you saw, you know, they have the angel hanging from their car mirror. Um, they, you know, they just, they just like them some angels. Now, here's the thing about angels is they're not to be exploited. They're not to be exaggerated, but they're also not to be ignored. For sure, they're not to be worshipped because God is to be the center of our worship. But for sure, angels do exist and they're all over Scripture. In fact, if you look up in, in angel passages in Scripture, there's over 300 instances of angels showing up all over the Bible. I want to begin this morning by looking at one verse from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? A lot of people read that verse and they're like, ah, that's, that's a great description of angels. They're ministering spirits from the Lord. They're there to serve those who will inherit salvation. So a lot of people, they read that verse and that's where they get this idea of a guardian angel. And then, you know, we take it a step further and say, oh yeah, everyone's got a guardian angel. But there's a lot of things I think that we accept or that maybe we believe about angels that are really just things that are more traditional than biblical. 
Now that's because they're supernatural beings. They, they are. Uh, we have a lot of misconceptions with that. Like, like, let's talk for a second about the whole wings thing, right? You know, angels have wings. Now, I know where you get the idea for that sometimes. Because of the seraphim, right? Seraphim, if you remember right from, from the book of Isaiah, when it says that the, so who the seraphim are, if you remember, they had wings. They were flying with two wings. They had two more wings that were covering their face, and they had two more wings that were covering their feet. And so a lot of times, if you believe a seraphim is the same as an angel, uh, then that's where you get the idea that angels have, have wings. Now, some scholars would say, well, a, a seraphim is a celestial being, but it's not an angel. It's a different celestial being. And so we kind of have to take a step back and say, okay, okay, so angels are celestial beings, but not all celestial beings are angels. There could be other supernatural beings that God has created in the heavens. But there's other myths that we have about, about angels too. I mean, how, how about the fact that, um, that not only about wings, but a lot of people believe angels are perfect like God. Well, then we read accounts like when Lucifer got sent away from heaven, he took a third of all the angels with him. So we know that angels aren't perfect like God. The other things, uh, I just remember this as a child. I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but in all the pageants and all the plays and everything, angels were girls with long blonde hair. I mean, totally biased, you know? I was like, what is the deal? It's like, yeah, you have to have blonde hair and be a girl to be an angel in any Christmas pageant. And I, I don't know where we got that idea in Scripture because in Scripture it's usually, uh, it says that many times the angel took on the form of a man or looked like a man. Um, there were some amazing things about angels in Scripture that they were bright and covered in light. I know that sometimes they were uh, so demonstrative and so overbearing in the moment that uh, people would get scared and draw back from angels. But, and then you get to the whole halos thing. Where, where did that come from? The only thing I could come up with is maybe like cartoons, you know? Um, but actually, a lot of us take our cues about what angels look like from art. If you go back uh, hundreds of years ago and look at old art of what do angels look like, people imagined it in their minds, and that's kind of the image that we carry today is they've got halos and they've got wings or whatever else we believe about them. But angels are real. They're God's messengers. They're used throughout Scripture. And we're going to look at the first appearance of an angel in the New Testament and in the Christmas story, an angel by the name of Gabriel who appears to an old priest Named Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Let's read. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Most scholars believe 70, 80 years old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, to understand this, um, this was a, a scheduled thing that your, you know, priestly lot would uh, come and, and serve the temple. But then, out of that group of priests, only one of them, they would cast lots, and only one of them would go in to actually do the act up into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. And so this was a big deal. Some priests got to do this maybe once in their entire lifetime. 
So this could have been like Zechariah's one time. We don't know that for sure. But look what it says as we continue there. Um, in verse 9, it says, He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So picture that scene. He's in the temple. He's going into the Holy of Holies. All of the worshipers are outside of the temple. They're all praying. And then in verse 11, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this, not bad news, but good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. Zechariah's initial response to this angelic message was shock and disbelief. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from this angelic exchange this morning. And the first thing is this. They were disappointed, yet faithful. Zech and Liz, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were disappointed, but faithful. They were not able to have a child. They were barren. Now, to us today, that's hard. We know people that have struggled with getting pregnant. We know what that means. But back in this day, it was really to a whole nother, and I would say unhealthy, level. I mean, you, you add to the disappointment that you aren't able to bear a child to this, this other layer of what it meant in Elizabeth's day. Because did you notice what she said at the end of our passage in verse 25? Let's go back there and read. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
Why would she be disgraced? In verse 6, we read, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Why would someone who's holding all the law of God and all the decrees of God in the Lord's eyes, called blameless here, be a disgrace in verse 25? But see, again, that's why we have to understand the Bible times and the culture of what's going on here. You see, you need to understand that being barren in this time was almost always blamed on the woman and was sometimes used as a legitimate grounds for divorce. It was so important that the lineage, the lineage would be carried on, that your wife would have offspring, and that one of those offspring be a male that would carry on the family name. And if you were barren, if you were barren, a lot of times you were treated with disgrace. Let me explain what the, what the popular, I guess you'd call it the, the popular religious thought was at that time. It went something like this. God blesses the righteous. He smiles on the righteous. He blesses the righteous. God's greatest blessing is children. So if you are childless, then there must be something wrong with you that only God alone can see. And that's how the ladies that were barren were treated in this time. That was the disgrace that Elizabeth was talking about there in verse 25. When she was finally able to miraculously, in her old age, conceive this baby who would be called John. It was a huge deal. Now, I thought about that and I thought, really? I mean, these people have the history of the lineage. I mean, think about some of the, never mind the holy matriarchs. Like, do you remember barren ladies like Sarah? or Rebecca, or Hannah, who all dealt with infertility. And yet, Elizabeth is treated this way. Think about it for a moment. How hard. How many, how many days and nights of tears were shed for years, hoping and praying that God would give them a child. They were disappointed. And yet scripture reveals to us that they were still faithful to the Lord. In verse 6, it says they were even blameless before the Lord, keeping the laws of God perfectly. They were disappointed. Life didn't go the way they thought that it should, but yet they were faithful. The second thing this morning, there is unrealized power in prayer. There's unrealized power in prayer, and, and I think today's Christian does not depend or lean into the power of prayer. Prayer changes lives. Prayer sometimes, I think, can have a hand in changing eternal destinations as we pray for those around us that are lost. Pray for that family member that is lost. Prayer can change so much. And yet we don't tap into it. We don't pray. Sometimes it's, it's our frequency of prayer is not enough. Sometimes I think it's what we pray. You know, it's, it's, it's so shallow. It's, it's not anything deep. And, and remember what prayer is in, in, in its simplest form. Prayer is communication with Almighty God. 
Prayer is our communication to Almighty God. Listen to what Scripture says about the unrealized power of prayer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous... And remember, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, they were called righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In James chapter 5, 16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And effective. Do we pray and expect powerful and effective prayers today? Because I think prayer is the most powerful when we yoke what we think our needs are and we yoke those needs to God's divine purposes and God's divine plan. Let me explain what I mean here. You know, Jesus gave us an example of prayer. Many times we observe that today and we call it the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We, we, we recite that prayer, um, and whether you think it's the Lord's Prayer, if you read it in the context of Scripture, I think a better title would be the Disciples' Prayer. It's the prayer that you know, Jesus is giving to the disciples and teaching them how to pray. But we pray that prayer, and it's a great example. But one of the prayers I often go to is actually the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what that was like? Jesus, under the stress and duration and knowing that, that he is about to face the cross of Calvary, he's about to be whipped and beaten, he's going to suffer so much pain, and not only just the physical pain of crucifixion and all that he would suffer in getting to the cross, it's not just the physical pain, but the emotional toil, all of those things that, that Jesus is dealing with at the time. You look at this, and you think about this, and you're just like, and when Jesus is in that garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what he does? He actually prays what is on his heart, as we do and should so many times. He says, Father God in heaven, if there's any way this cup could be taken away from me. What he was talking about there was the cup of suffering. He knew the suffering that he was going to come into. Jesus was saying, hey, if there's any other way to save the world and to not have me suffer like I'm about to, Lord, Father, God, his heavenly Father and his Father in heaven, Jesus the Son, says, if there's any other way, Lord, that this cup of suffering could pass from me. But then, do you remember how Jesus ends the prayer? The most important part is, but not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. You see, when we mesh what we think our needs are with God's divine purposes, we can pray for whatever we want. But sometimes when I am laying out my requests before the Lord, and sometimes I think I've got good, holy requests. i got requests that ought to line up with the will of God. I remind myself of Jesus, the Son of God, saying, hey, not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. I feel like Zechariah and Elizabeth were people who perhaps prayed like that when they're called faithful and, and blameless before the Lord. But there's unrealized power in prayer. Did you catch it? Did you catch it in the text? It's, it's in verse 13. Don't, don't miss it. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
How long do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying that prayer? If they're in their 70s or 80s, maybe 60 years, 50 or 60 years praying and crying out to the Lord. Now, maybe it dwindled as they aged. Maybe they got to this point where it's like, hey, I'm 60, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm 70 years old here. I, this, yeah, this is probably not happening for us. Maybe their prayers changed, but it's interesting because the angel of the Lord says, your prayers have been heard. And I've got some good news share with you. There's unrealized power in prayer, church. So pray more. The third thing this morning, it is possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. It is possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. And when I say that, I think of a question, where's the faith in that? If I, have all, if I have all the evidence that I need to believe, then is there an element of faith to that? How I love to define faith is Hebrews 11.1. 1. I memorized that as a child in the NIV, the 1984 translation. In 1984, says it this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I think that's a great definition of faith. Faith is being sure Sure, secure, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We walk by faith, scripture says, and not by sight. We don't have to see because we accept what God says in faith. But sometimes I think it's possible for us to demand too much evidence before we believe God's promises. And God wants us to trust him and to take him at his word and to take him and at his promises and then we need to accept those in faith. We need to accept that God is working in faith if he has promised to do something in our lives. Things like Romans 8.28 remind us of this. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those who are loved and called by God according to his purpose, he's working all things. All things? You don't know the circumstances I'm in right now. All things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What a great reminder for us. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. And my God will meet all of your needs. All of my needs? Like all, all of my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4 19. These are reminders for us, but I think they're also warnings to us. They're warnings. Unless we, like Zechariah, demand too much evidence before we believe and accept God's promises. It's hard. We are called by God when we don't have all of the information. But let's go back to the text. Let's go back to the passage. What was identified to Zechariah here? When he responds to Gabriel in verse 18, here's what he had to go on. Elizabeth will bear a son. His name is to be John. 
He will bring joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He's not to drink wine or strong drink his whole life because he is to be consecrated for special service to the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he's in his mother's womb. He will turn many in Israel back to God. He will go before the Messiah in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. He will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared for the Messiah. Now that is a lot of information. Think about it. It's the pregnancy news, the gender reveal, the birth announcement, the naming, the upbringing, the career path, and the results of his whole life all wrapped into one. And Zechariah's response is found in verse 18. Let's be fair and read it. Zechariah then asked the angel after this, how can I be sure of this? It's <laughs> a lot of details there, Zechariah. What could he not see beyond? It's found in the next words that he speaks. I'm an old man, <laughs> and my wife is well along in years. And I want Gabriel to say, Zechariah, I want the next line to be, nothing is impossible with God. But that's, that's for next week. Um, but in 19, it says, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I thought that was kind of a weird response. And then I, I read it again and again, and I'm trying to, you know, be in the moment with the scripture, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, could Gabriel be a little bit miffed at Zechariah's response? I mean, he brought him all this good. Let's just read it. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, Zechariah. I stand in the presence of God. Okay? And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you of this not bad news, but good news. Let that sink in. Verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true. They're still going to come true because God is faithful at the right moment, at their appointed time. And I wonder in thinking of an angel named Gabriel's response, how did God feel in that moment? Because I'm thinking Gabriel's a little bit miffed. But how many of us ask of God the same thing? How can I be sure of this? I, I, need, more, I need more evidence. And when our circumstances are dark and distressing, I, I sometimes have a hard time, I, I cannot believe that God is working for his infinite good until there's some ray of hope, right? Until there's that ray of light and until there's that extra piece of evidence or something to show me, hey, everything's going to be okay. And how often do we fail to take God at his word? And I wonder how that would make the Almighty feel. But it is possible, folks, to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. Have faith and believe in his promises, which leads us to the last point this morning. It's because faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. It matters to God. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Maybe that's the message for someone here this morning. Don't give up on God. 
Because in season, I don't know when the season, when's the season? The season's hard right now. In God's appointed time, in the right season, at the appointed time, you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up, if you remain faithful. In verse 6, when it introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says both of them were righteous in the sight of God. The only person you want to be righteous in the sight of is God. Observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And then you go down to verse 23 in our text. It, this is Zechariah gets the news. He's now mute. He's come out of the temple, remember? And they're like, hey, what happened to him? He can't talk anymore. He's seen a vision. It says, when his time of service was completed, he stayed there in the temple. He did the duties that he was supposed to do as a priest. He was faithful. When his time of service was completed, then he returned home. But I want to go beyond the text and the passage this morning, but in the same chapter, in Luke chapter 1, if you go down to verse 57, it tells us some more about the faithfulness of this couple. Let me read it to you. It says, when it was the time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. Now, do you remember what he used to be called? What the angels say? John. Okay. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother, Elizabeth, spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. But they said to her, there is no one amongst all of your relatives who has that name. In other words, let me translate. Elizabeth, are you crazy? Are you nuts? You're like 80 years old. You've been praying for this your whole life. You finally have a baby. He's, he's a son. He's going to carry on the family name. Name him after Zechariah. I mean, come on. This is obvious. Low-hanging fruit. Elizabeth's crazy. She's, she's, she's losing her mind here. Go to verse 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. So it's Zechariah's turn now. Verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Faithfulness. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak. And you know what he spoke? It says in the text, praising God. First words out of his mouth after he's been silent for probably a little over nine months. He starts praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things because faithfulness matters. So the challenge for you this morning is to keep praying. Keep praying. Keep serving. Keep being faithful to the Lord with your service. Keep witnessing. Keep leading people to, to Christ Jesus. Keep giving. Giving of your time, your talents, your testimony, and your tithe. I'm not telling you that the angel Gabriel is going to suddenly appear to you for sure. I'm not saying that God's going to reveal to you the future and you're going to know exactly what he's going to do. But I am saying that the road of faithfulness is where your answers to your questions is going to come from. It's going to come from this obedience and faithfulness 
to God. It's going to come from a close, a close relationship and a trust that you have in Almighty God. And I will tell you this morning, if we do the ordinary things with an eye to God's kingdom and his glory, God will do the extraordinary things. He'll do the miraculous. He'll make 80-year-olds have babies. Whatever, whatever his will is. And I know like sometimes we, we feel like, man, I need a little miraculous in my life because of what I'm going through right now. But that is God's department. Our part is faithfulness, to do what he asks us to do. Not to pick and choose parts, but to do the whole of Scripture. Our part is to be faithful. Wherever we are, whatever the circumstances, faithfulness is what God desires. Because he's always being faithful to us by keeping true to his word. But he's also faithful to us even to the point of sending Jesus, the Son of God, his one and only Son, the Scripture says, into the world, taking on the form of man. The incarnation is what we call that. Jesus, the Son of God, takes on the form of man, sent into the world, ultimate purpose, to die, to be crucified, so that we could have the opportunity of a restored relationship with God through his blood.